Our scripture reading this morning is from the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, we'll work through the whole chapter. I tried to uh, figure out how I could break it up to select some verses so the reading wouldn't be uh, so long, but it really doesn't break up, so I'm just going to try not to read it like the hick that crawled up from the woods of Iredell County like I am. Uh, So please stand for the reading of scripture and I'll try to read it quickly. Hebrews 9.1 Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would come and speak to us, that we may hear your word, that we may hear your voice, that our eyes would be open, that we would see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, that his sheep would know his voice and follow him. And we pray that you would meet each one of us where we are and tell us exactly what we need to hear in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Jesus, the priest, the lamb, and the end. I have found a new favorite verse this week. It is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5, the end of which says, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So in other words, we have divine permission not to go into all the details of all these objects from the tabernacle. If we had to go into detail uh, to explain all of these things, we would be in Hebrews chapter 9 for the rest of this year. But we can stick with the big picture. God gave us permission to do so with the general ideas of this passage. And while there are many details in the text before us, the big picture is clear. The author is still comparing and contrasting Jesus to the ceremonial religion of the Old Testament. Here he shows us that Jesus is a superior priest to the Old Testament priests in the tabernacle. He is a superior lamb to all the Old Testament animal sacrifices. And his death put an end to the Old Testament priests and sacrifices. So today we see Jesus, the priest, the lamb, and the end. Let's get to it. First, Jesus the priest. Look at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section or the first tent is still standing. Now in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was divided into two parts. The first was the holy place and the second was the holy of holies as we all know it as the modern Bible is called the most holy place. Now the priests would go regularly into the holy place to perform their priestly duties, make sacrifices, burn incense, offer prayers, and so forth. But only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies, and only once a year. 
and he could not enter without blood. Blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people. Since without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Now, the high priest alone could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. The regular priest could not go at all. But they went into the first section of the tabernacle, the holy place, regularly. But do you realize that in the Old Testament, the people could not go in at all? They could only gather in the courtyard, which is why in verse 8 it says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. We see Jesus is a better priest than the priests of the Old Testament and the tabernacle, even a better priest than the high priest in the Holy of Holies. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places. Now skip to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is a better priest because he entered into a better tabernacle. The high priest could only go into the holy of holies of the earthly tabernacle, and that only once a year. That was the farthest and highest anyone could go in those days. But Jesus went infinitely farther, not in the earthly copy, but in the true, heavenly, holy place in the presence of God. Let's think about it. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle on earth says it was a copy of the presence of God in heaven. In the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And all of us who are 35 years or older sort of know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like because we all saw Raiders of the Lost Ark at some point in our life. This gold-plated box with this lid, the cover on it, with the two cherubim, uh, the angels, one at each end, each with, a, each with a wing extended toward the other, like this. They're outstretched wings. We read in Scripture that these cherubim, the real cherubim, the angels, fly around the throne of God all the time and worship God. They say, holy, holy, holy. And so these cherubim with their wings outstretched, it's, it's a symbol of the angels flying around the throne of God worshiping him, it symbolizes the presence of God. It's a copy of heaven. It is a copy of God's throne. 
That's what the high priest entered. Jesus entered the real thing. So we see Jesus, the priest. Secondly, in this passage, we see Jesus, the lamb. Jesus, the lamb. Look at verse 9 which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed up until the time of reformation. The Old Testament animal sacrifices, it says, that were offered under the old system in the tabernacle and temple, says they don't touch the conscience of the worshiper. It's only a ceremony. It is nothing more than a ceremony. We have all been to many weddings. At some of them, the heart, the conscience, the spirit was in it. Something really happened. But we've been to other weddings that were nothing more than a ceremony. Never touched the conscience, the heart of the participants which the test of time inevitably revealed. See, the Old Testament sacrifices were just an external ceremony and nothing more. But Jesus is a better sacrifice. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Keep going, verse 13. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus offered not the blood of an animal. He offered his own blood. And he points out several ways that the blood of Jesus that the sacrifice of Jesus is superior and Jesus is a superior lamb to the animals of the Old Testament. First of all, he tells us that the blood of Jesus secured eternal redemption in verse 12. He secured eternal redemption through his own blood. Now to redeem is to set free, to purchase freedom. Jesus' blood, it secured, it purchased our freedom from sin and death. The Old Testament sacrifices pictured it and they promised it, but only the blood of Jesus actually secured it. 
So His blood secured eternal redemption. Secondly, we see that His blood provides internal cleansing. Verse uh, 13 again says that the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ See, at the end, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. His sacrifice is no mere ceremony. It is the genuine article. Now back to weddings. I've known people, so have you, that have blown $50,000 on a wedding ceremony and didn't stay married 10 years. My grandparents on my daddy's side came from the northwestern corner of Ardle County, North Carolina. They call it Ardle County up there. And when they got married, my granddaddy was about 21 and my grandmother was about 15. And you couldn't marry when you were 15 in the state of North Carolina, but they didn't check it in South Carolina, so they got in the car and rode down to the York County Courthouse and got married by the judge just a few miles straight down the road. No ceremony. No money blown on a fancy wedding. They stayed married 71 years. An external ceremony, no matter how elaborate it may be, it can't by itself touch the inner man. But the blood of Jesus can. It can cleanse the conscience in a way a ceremony, no matter how elaborate, could never do. How's your conscience today? Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You've got something to feel guilty about. I guarantee you, I know I do. Nothing can clear it. Nothing you do can ease your conscience. No ceremony can make it go away. Religious participation cannot clear the conscience. But friends, the blood of Jesus Christ can clear your conscience. His blood has paid it all. It is settled. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, him, and we don't sing anymore. I wish we did. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The blood of Jesus can cleanse the conscience, the inner man. So we see that his blood secured eternal redemption. It provides internal cleansing. And thirdly, we see that his blood is eternal. Look at verse uh, 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish 
to God. Now you see there's a Trinitarian reference there. It says Jesus, that's the Son, offered Himself to God, that's the Father, and He offered Himself, the Son offers Himself to the Father through the Holy Spirit. But you notice here He calls the Holy Spirit the eternal Spirit. Why does He choose to call Him the eternal Spirit? Well, the next verse explains it. Look at verse 15. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, notice the end of that verse. The death of Jesus redeems sins or redeems the people from sins committed under the first covenant. When was that? The Old Testament, before Jesus died. You see, we could read this, this passage in these chapters we've been in in Hebrews and think, man, those poor Old Testament people, they did all those sacrifices, went through all those ceremonies, and they weren't saved. It couldn't save them. Animal blood could not forgive their sins. But he tells us, oh, but they were saved. The true believers were how? It says the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Verse 15, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The blood of Jesus retroactively saved believers from the Old Testament. Now you ask, how can the death of Jesus possibly save people who lived 1,500 years before he died? <laughs> well, I got a question for you. How can his blood save somebody who lived 2,000 years after he died? The author tells us how. Jesus offered himself on the cross through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. God is eternal. Jesus died through the eternal Spirit. So His death, His blood, His sacrifice can be applied by that same Holy Spirit across all time. I have no idea how that works. But I give God credit for being able to do something I can't understand. So we see Jesus the priest, Jesus the sacrifice. Thirdly and finally, we see Jesus the end. The end. Look at verse uh, uh, 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, Jesus is the end. His sacrifice is the end because his death guarantees the execution of the will. He gives an illustration here. You understand? The will becomes permanent and goes into effect at death. While you're alive, you can change your will. He's not saying that God could change his will, uh, change his mind, uh, 
you know, like us one day and turn against us. And he doesn't mean that. He's simply saying that just as a human will is executed and becomes permanent upon the death of a person making a will, the testator, so now that Jesus has died, the eternal inheritance of his people is secured. It is final. But his death is also the end of the sacrificial system. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for he would then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all to end the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it, it couldn't actually save anybody, but it wasn't worthless either. It was given to prepare people for the sacrifice of Jesus so they would have a grid, a framework through which they could understand it when it came. As the entire book of Hebrews explains the coming and death of Jesus in terms of the Old Testament. The sacrificial system was given to help people to have faith in Jesus Christ before he came. But now that he has come, it's done. Once and for all. Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated again and again and again. There was no need for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to be repeated. Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. It is appointed to men, to man once to die, and after this judgment we will die and we will stand before God. There will be a judgment. But Jesus died once, once and for all, and he bore our judgment once and for all. It is done. There is nothing left to do, nothing to repeat. He has made an end of all sacrifices. Finally, we see that Jesus is the end of all things. It says he's coming a second time in verse 28, the end of it, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting him. That's the end of all things. He's coming again. He's coming for those, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus, the priest, the lamb, in the end, are you eagerly waiting on him to come? You can't be eagerly awaiting the judge if your conscience has not yet been cleansed. But the blood of the judge himself is able to cleanse 
from all unrighteousness it can cleanse our guilty conscience you eagerly waiting Jesus Christ from heaven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost Amen